back to the one two three show with me noreen mayor on this tuesday afternoon i'm excited because we've got andrew dambina joining us on the show today andrew how are you doing today yeah pretty good thank you noreen how are you good thanks it it sounds like you're in a kitchen or something yes i'm actually i'm in a uh, i'm in an art studio oh, to be honest oh very interesting to yeah. do the tuesday report should save that for yes. artsing around. Oh, or will you be doing artsing around in a kitchen just to switch things up? Good one. I'll be next to a blender on Tuesday <laughs> just, to, just to literally mix it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very funny. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, what have you got for us uh, this afternoon? Okay, so um, get ready for a bit of a geek fest on the evolution. Uh, well, I know you're holding your breath, so I'll just say the rest of the sentence on non-stick frying pans. Yes? Sure, yeah? sure. All right. Like, like Teflon, I'm serious. Like Teflon or, or you know, well, that yeah. kind of material? Yeah, yeah. Because it's, um, there, there's been a, uh, one of the international food and drinks magazines that I really think does some good researched articles. It's called Taste Magazine. It's from the US. And I don't, um, I don't use it that often, but, but maybe a couple of times a year they come up with an interesting article. But uh, this one's particularly interesting. A writer recently wrote what I found to be an interesting look back on what is nearly a century. It's not the 100th year anniversary, but it's almost a century of uh, cookware manufacturers trying to make the kitchen cook's life a bit easier by letting things slide around the frying pan and not be a nightmare when it's time to do the washing up. So uh, I came across some findings that I thought our astute home cook listener on RTHK Radio 3 would be interested to hear. Um, have, you, have, have you been through a lot of deteriorated uh, non-stick pans in your time, Noreen? I think so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah they, they, because they do, they do kind of start to crumble in a way, don't they? You know, the surface is not always reliable, um, or even non-stick more than a normal frying pan i find they just kind of the handle comes loose or they can be a bit um uh warped in the actual pan area they can get a bit uneven some of them are made very cheaply i think i think so, so too. it also depends what material i mean forgive me but i'm i don't remember all the i only know teflon but there are other sort of non-stick um materials and other, other on, non other non-stick brands available yeah, yeah exactly yeah well that was but that was the first one that uh became quite a, an icon brand for the whole non-stick pan movement, Noreen. So uh, that was, uh, yeah, you're, you're right to mention that one. There have been some disappointments over the years, but in recent years there have been incredible developments, which is quite interesting to read about. The first ones were invented then in the 1930s, making it nearly a century of technology. And still, even today, when I went through this very in-depth research long-form article it seems that um, i'll come to more conclusions at the end of it but that the whole work of non-stick pans is very much a work in progress a hundred years nearly hundred years later mm. and so the basic formula at first was teflon as you say um and the actual materials scientifically that are used for that it's called polytetrafluoroethane and that's PTFE, thank goodness there's an abbreviation for short. Um, but it's being constantly redesigned. That 
uh, PTFE is still being used today. It's still one of the options out there, but there are a lot more advanced ones than that. And established brands who debuted that technology of non-stick cookware in the 1950s became really, really popular. And these big names of, of uh, manufacturing brands still pour resources into research and development of the original PTFE. Uh, and some of them are going into different areas too. They're competing nowadays with an even newer and increasingly stylish looking um, more durable non-stick pans or, or manufacturers that claim to be more durable. The original PTFE pans had one layer of this um, of this substance, Teflon PTFE, and others. Yeah, yeah PTFE. There was a one-layer coating. Uh, and then came multi-layer coatings, which didn't make it uh, flake off, and it also made it even easier to move ingredients around in a pan and to cook without using cooking oil. Yeah. That was quite a, quite a breakthrough. That you could just put something in there and get less calories or, um, or oil into the food that you were cooking. Water-based coatings were used to reduce solvents that in their manufacturing stage contributes to CO2 emissions quite badly in uh, earlier editions. You know, you get a lot of CO2 emissions rather from uh, the manufacturing of the first generation ones. So the, the biggest challenge though is that pan, the pan makers have is to find one where the coating doesn't start flaking off or shedding after a few uses. Uh, and it, it, boils, it boils down to how the coating is applied. They found that to make the, uh, the surface and the new technology of surface stick to the pan, they had to make sure that there was no oil and dirt and there was a natural pH and surfaces had to be roughened up to allow the coating to bite or to stick into the grain of the pan. And in the late 1980s, uh, another breakthrough came through, which was called, I told you this was going to be a geek fest, by the way, by the way, Noreen. <laughs> it, um, it's a uh, hard anodized aluminium, which uh, was used sure, for cookware. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you hear what I said? Hard anodized aluminium cookware. <laughs> and that, what does that mean? It's um, a pan that is made, first of all, it's cast into aluminium and then it's dipped into a solution. Uh, a chemical solution that has an electric current passed through it while in a solution that results in a super hard, black, micro-thin surface. And that surface is twice as hard as stainless steel, which was really massively revolutionary. And it's very porous. It's got lots of tiny micro-holes in it, making it easier for non-stick surfaces to bond and stick more permanently and not flake off so quickly. So... That's that's uh, that that's how it's evolved. Uh, but Noreen, sadly, I haven't finished yet. Two decades later, in 2007, another breakthrough came through, and it was an alternative to PTFE coatings altogether. A new technology, which you probably you may have heard of, ceramic coating, came in. Have you heard of this? No, Where, I haven't. No. Okay. It's so basically, it's using sand or silica and uh, heating it to into a melting point that it, where it becomes a gel that sticks to an inner layer of, of the pan. And so the pan uh, then looks quite glossy and it feels and looks like glass. 
and it's 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 considered a more green option because it uh, was uh, it's produced in a way that is uh, less um, uh, polluting environmentally. And also, very importantly, for health reasons, it was proven, it has been proven, to be a great alternative to PTFE, which has come over the decades under increased uh, scrutiny for potential links to cancer. Because um, yeah. I think yeah. the melting point is something like 300 degrees Celsius. So if you if, if you leave the oil in for, for too long, it gets too hot, it, it kind of peels off the, the upper surface and then it, it leaches into your food. Yeah. And it's really Even, bad. You're, you're, oh, oh, you're right. you're it as well. Right. Well, this, this, this Taste magazine article actually um, by... By, uh, by approaching a lot of different manufacturers of different brands, have, has uh, now says that it's 230 degrees um, uh, Celsius, which at which these effects can take place for PTFE. Mm. So it's um, it's worth also noting that while ceramic non-stick pans don't have that potentially cancerous effects, or at least it hasn't been found since 2007, which is still, you know, some some time that it's been in use and scientific research has been done. Um, the process of degrading still does begin to happen. So it was it was produced originally not for the um, not for the health and cancer risks, but but for um, to stop it degrading and because it's made in a greener way that's less polluting in the manufacturing stage. But um, after a lot of uh, candid questions and answers by Taste magazine to a lot of manufacturers, the conclusions that they came to um, from finding out various industry truths, some of the manufacturers wouldn't comment because, you know, there's too much at stake for their worldwide um, sales. But all, all these pots do degrade and the conclusion really is that non-stick pans should be changed manufacturers agreed to this between every three and five years which i don't think that many people would do every three or years or five years unless you had great big clumps coming off a non-stick pan so that was a very interesting finding i thought exactly yeah oh, yeah that's good to yeah. know it is, and another, just another quick one to add as a, as a recommendation from this really in-depth article is that it's better, given that you should be changing it that frequently, which also then asks the question of where are these things being thrown into landfills, um, that you should um, stick to the dependable US $30 to $40 per pound. That's around the 300 Hong Kong dollar uh, range. No need to get the ones which are claiming to be super-duper this and that, which cost around $1,000 Hong Kong. Aww. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the takeaway from, from that. Very so, interesting. Oh, oh, just very quickly, Andrew, do, do you yeah. use uh, these sorts of non-stick yeah. pans? When, when I do. You're a big fan of them, um, or do you have uh, alternatives? No, 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 alternatives as well. But, um, but for, certain, for certain cooking, I would say eggs for omelettes, and yeah, things which are, for example, yes, yes, pancakes, and also things which are a bit more delicate. Um, the only thing I could think of in Asian cuisine really would be, let's say, a fried dumpling, which is, uh, say, a fried uh, Chinese or other Asian style of dumpling, where the skin can be so 
uh, sensitive to, to breaking around a pan that it would be that it would easily stick to a steel wok oh, yeah. or oh, or pan. Totally. That's, um, That's like yeah. the worst. I, I've made pancakes before. I, I did, like growing up, we didn't really use nonstick. We had like those stainless steel wok mm. with the two handles. So I'd right. attempt to make pancakes in them, and what an error! Oh, did it always stick? <laughs> it was, did they always stick? Always, yeah, always. Yeah, you have to sort of peel it off, and you, you end up making like I don't know some something halfway between crepes and pancakes. But you'd have to peel it off. So it'd be, it'd be, it would be, it would be, you know, you know how some restaurants like a, uh, they like to use the, the, the term deconstructed. Oh, Have yeah. you ever seen that for a dessert, like a deconstructed apple pie, yeah. where it's in bits and pieces? This would be the deconstructed pancakes. Walk an error. Oh, very good, very <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. I've seen yeah. a deconstructed um, French onion soup before on MasterChef. That was odd. Well, maybe we can do a topic on deconstructed food one day. Well, yeah, or maybe it could just be incorporated into um, annoying, faddish terms and, <laughs> and, and uses. I've certainly got a number of phrases which I, which I still find teeth-curlingly annoying, which have been, which come and go. Um, I think I, I probably mentioned it before, but I really can't stand mixologist. For um, for bartender, it's just it's just it's just needless, really. Yeah. But, I, I, uh, I feel like if your name was Merlin, then you could you could be a Merlin the mixologist. <laughs> That's kind of cool. That, like, yeah, like that, you know that bartender that that you uh, I don't know if, if our audience are familiar. You know, first dates on uh, British yeah. telly. That guy, yeah. he's he, his name is Mervin. Mer- Mervin Merlin 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 yeah. Merlin yeah yeah yeah. So, yeah. I think, I, and I, I agree, and also that particular character in that program is very, just seems like a nice guy. So <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it's like I can't imagine him calling himself a mixologist and, and raising an eyebrow as if that's something special. But, <laughs> but, but, but in his case, yeah, it would, it would pass. So talking of drinks, this segs beautifully into the next segment on today's Tuesday report, which is, many will be glad to hear that wine and weight loss do have a relationship relationship rather this is according to an article in drinks business magazine just a few days ago um the polyphenols in red wine are said to burn calories in food this is quite an interesting one because we've heard of benefits before in both red and white wine usually more so in the red but the polyphenols, which are meant to be good for cardiovascular health, haven't been cited as burning calories in food before. So don't give up wine when looking to lose weight, the article uh, claims to its readers just a few days ago. Um, drinking wine with your food could help <laughs> you shed shed some weight. Is that, that was article, message. is that article sponsored by some sort of, I don't know, winery <laughs> or something? Yeah. Or by, it's, or by the, by, it's full of sugar. Yeah, by the, Wine, I well, okay, there are there are there are calories, and there there is sugar, of course, from the from the grapes. That's true, which might have other effects for people with diabetes. Or, but um, yeah, I'll just kind of, I'll just run you through the theory of this one, Noreen. So sure, the sure. it was it was put out there by a professor of nutrition during a webinar to present this idea. The, uh, the, uh, the name of the webinar was Wine and Weight Management, Is It Possible? This was the proposition put forward by Professor Rosa uh, Lamuela Raventos from Spain, 
who began by answering her own question, which was that, that very question. Is it possible to lose weight by drinking wine on a regular basis? So she's a professor at the Barcelona University of Nutrition, Food Science and Gastronomy. And she went on to moderate that uh, a debate about uh, wine consumption from her research not correlating with weight gain. She revealed new evidence to show that red wine, in particular, more so than white wine, can help burn calories in food when it's, when it's drunk with meals together, offering a range of health benefits besides this as well. And she told the audience that the term empty calories was misleading if it's used for describing wine, which contains a whole list of beneficial minerals, vitamins, as well as these uh, polyphenols that I mentioned, which do the calorie burning. But the minerals and vitamins that are in there, in her mind, makes wine not empty calories. Some other alcohol, particularly beer, is often called empty calories. So are spirits sometimes. But it's been applied to wines, and she's disputing this. And the the, uh, the webinar was organised um, not by a particular wine trade board that you suggested, which, 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 which would have made sense, but it's an organisation which is called Wine in Moderation. It's about not drinking too much wine, actually. So interesting that they took it on as being a... a an organisation which does, which wants to promote drinking wine in moderation, goes on to say that, or sponsors an event uh, that, that proposes that it can decrease weight. Anyway, the she mentioned that the growing proportion of the uh, world is uh, considered to be obese by uh, Body Mass Index, that's the BMI, um, but com- the combination of a rise in obesity and the sense that alcoholic drinks provide empty calories has led to the mistaken custom of eliminating wine from a weight loss diet. She says this is a mistake. So so what is the incidence of obesity and the level of cardiovascular risk among wine drinkers then, we wonder, because we do always hear that they're full of calories. The answer is that she looked at a study that happened in 2013 called Pre-Dimed. It was, a, it was a nutritional study that has been cited a lot about the Mediterranean diet, published in 2013, looking at different elements of drink, food, and other nutrition supplements that people uh, commonly were taking around the 2010 to 2013 period in the Mediterranean region of Europe. And it was noticed that those who consumed wine had a decreased heart rate, a lower BMI, and their diets were the same as non-drinkers. So they were taken as research subjects along other people who were non-drinkers that were eating exactly the same diet. So those who drink, the, the findings from this that she cited, those who drink very little, and that's between one and six units of, uh, of alcohol per week, which is about a handful of glasses of wine per week, uh, and those who consumed more than 14, all showed benefits. So if you're a moderate drinker or someone who drinks a bit more than is recommended, there were good results for losing calories um, and for the 
polyphenols interacting with the, the, the fatty content of food and breaking it down, basically. So these, um, as for cholesterol, she said that there were no changes in the levels of cholesterol when people drank wine, again, between 3 and 14 units per week. That's interesting because we do often hear also that drinking alcohol can push up cholesterol. I know a lot about that because I was, went through a period where I was watching things affecting my cholesterol quite carefully. And spirits in particular are supposed to really push up the cholesterol levels. Spirit, so, spirits push up cholesterol levels. More so than wine. In oh. fact, the higher the uh, alcohol content, the more it is said to affect cholesterol, oh. um, as, as, as well as as well as blood pressure, of course. Wow. That's another. So that's I another suppose matter. beer is is actually all right for cholesterol. I would think it. I would have thought it was some somehow bad for cholesterol. Mm, no, there's there there are other there are other calorific aspects to beer, which um, which is. The, the whole composition of beer is different, so people do put on calories from beer. But the, the polyphenols and the amount of calories which are far fewer in, um, in a glass of wine than a pint of beer um, means that the, uh, um, the, the reaction against the, the, the way that the fat is uh, metabolized in the body is broken down more quickly and doesn't turn into fat which is gained in the uh, in the in the sort of constitution of that that person who's drinking and eating Good to I, know. I, I, yeah uh, so I, I'm gonna leave that there because I'm aware of the time but uh, but it, but it's interesting and you can find out more about that by looking for the wine and weight management is it possible talk which is out there online if Great. you want to know more. Thank you so much yeah. uh, for your time this afternoon. Andrew Dembina, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much and you'll be back again <laughs> Thursday for um, Artsing Around. Thank you very much. Well indeed. Thank you. A quick look